friends, and welcome back to Bitching About the Decameron. We are now on the eighth day, which is all about tricks that people play on each other. I've looked ahead at the stories to come, and we're going to be hearing about a series of tricks that were played upon people, usually without any justification for playing them, which... If you're coming at these stories from the angle of, wow, isn't that a clever bit of trickery, it can be quite entertaining. If you're coming at these stories from the angle of, wow, that's a shitty thing to do to somebody, not so much. But in the interests of actually reading you the Decameron and not skipping all of it, we're going to continue. We're going to skip 8.3 and go on with the fourth story from the eighth day. When Alyssa came to the end of her tale, which in the course of its telling had brought no small pleasure to the entire company, the Queen turned to Amelia and indicated that she would like her to tell her own story next. So Amelia promptly began as follows. Worthy ladies, it has already been shown, as I recall, in several of the stories we have heard, that priests, friars, and clerics of all descriptions will stop at nothing to force themselves on our attention but however much we may discuss this particular subject, more will remain to be said, and I therefore propose to tell you a story about a provost who was determined, come what may, to obtain the favours of a certain widow, whether she wanted to grant them to him or not. But being highly intelligent, the lady, who was of gentle birth, treated him according to his deserts. As you all know, Fiesole, which stands on the top of a hill, clearly visible from where we are now, is a city of great antiquity and was once very large. Although it has now fallen into total ruin, it has never been without a bishop, and there is one living there to this day. Some years ago, a widow of gentle birth called Mona Picarda had an estate there, not far from the principal church, and since she was not the wealthiest of women, she resided there for almost the entire year, in a house of modest proportions, together with her two brothers, a pair of very worthy and polite young gentlemen. Now this lady went regularly to the nearby church, and since she was still a very beautiful and charming young woman, its provost fell so passionately in love with her that she alone commanded the whole of his attention. And in the end he waxed so bold as to acquaint the lady with his wishes, imploring her to be content that he should love her, and to requite his ardent passion. Though elderly in years, this provost had the mentality of a small child, being haughty and presumptuous and possessing a mighty high opinion of himself. He was forever picking holes in people and making himself generally unpleasant, and was so pompous and tedious that he was disliked by everybody, but especially by this lady, who not only disliked, but positively loathed him. But being an intelligent woman, as we have said, she replied, Sir, I am extremely flattered that you should love me. I am bound to love you in return, and I shall do so with all my heart, but there must never be anything unseemly about our love for one another. You are my spiritual father, you are a priest and you are fast approaching your old age, all of which things require that you should lead a chaste and honourable life. Besides, I am no longer a young girl, able to take affairs of this sort in her stride, but a widow, and you know how essential it is that widows should follow the path of virtue. You must therefore excuse me, for I can never love you in the way you request, nor do I wish to be loved in this manner by you. Although he could obtain no other answer from her at this first encounter, the provost was not the sort of man to be discouraged or defeated by a single rebuff, and with his habitual arrogance and effrontery, he importuned her repeatedly by means of letters and messages, as well as by word of mouth whenever he saw her coming into church. 
and so the lady, finding that his attentions were becoming quite intolerable, resolved that she would teach him a salutary lesson, albeit she would do nothing without first consulting her brothers. She therefore told them all about the provost's importunate behaviour, and explained what she was proposing to do about it. Having obtained their full consent, a few days later she went to the church as usual, and no sooner did the provost catch sight of her than he came over to her and spoke to her in his customary, over-familiar manner. When she saw him coming, the lady fixed her gaze upon him and gave him a cheerful smile. So the provost led her to a secluded corner of the church and plied her with his usual stream of endearments, whereupon the lady fetched a deep sigh and said, "'Sir, I have frequently heard it said that no fortress is sufficiently strong to withstand a perpetual siege.' and I have now discovered from my own experience that this is perfectly true. For you have beleaguered me so completely with your tender words and countless acts of courtesy that you have forced me to break my former resolve. And seeing that you find me so much to your liking, I am willing to surrender. Heaven be praised, said the provost, who could scarcely contain his joy. To tell you the truth, madam, I am amazed that you should have held out for so long, seeing as this has never happened to me with any woman before. And in fact, I have sometimes had occasion to reflect that if women were made of silver, you couldn't turn them into coins as they bend too easily. But no more of this. When and where can we be together? Sweet my lord, said the lady, we can meet whenever you please, for I have no husband to whom I must give an account of my nights, but as to where we are going to meet, I have no idea. Why not, said the provost, why don't we meet in your house? Sir, replied the lady, as you know, I have two younger brothers who bring their friends to the house at all hours of the day and night, and since my house is not very big, it would be quite impossible for us to meet there unless we were to remain completely silent without saying a word, and move about in the dark as though we were blind. In this case it would be feasible, for my brothers never invade my bedroom, but their own isn't immediately next to mine, and one can't even whisper without being heard. That's no great problem, said the provost. Let's do as you suggest for a night or two, until I can think of a place where we can meet more freely. I leave that to you, sir, said the lady, but on one thing I must insist, that the affair remains a secret, and you never breathe a word of it to anyone. Of that you may rest assured, madam, said the provost. But when are we to meet? Can you arrange it for tonight? Why, of course, said the lady, and having explained to him how and when he was to come, she took her leave of him and returned home. Now, this lady had a maidservant, which Giovanni goes on to describe as being horribly ugly, etc., 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 and that's actually not enormously plot-relevant. So I'm just going to skip that. Her name was Kyuta, but because she was so ugly to look at, everyone called her Kyutatsa. And although her body was so misshapen, she was always prepared for a spot of mischief. So the lady sent for her and said, Kyutatsa, if you will do something for me tonight, I shall give you a fine new smock clothing being relatively expensive, this is a reasonable bribe. At the mention of a smock, Kyutatsa pricked up her ears and said, If you give me a smock, ma'am, I'll go through fire for you. That's good, said the lady. Now, what I want you to do is to sleep with a man tonight in my bed and ply him with caresses. But you must take care not to utter a single word in case my brothers should hear you, for as you know, they sleep in the room next to mine. And tomorrow you shall have the new smock. If need be, said Kutatsa, I would sleep with half a dozen men, let alone one. Don't you love this description of the ugly maid who has absolutely no standards? 
because by the standards of these stories, which have repeatedly mocked and derided women for sleeping with men for the sake of money and gifts, and with a smock being a reasonable gift, but not a tremendously large one, Kyotatsa here is shown to be not at all refined. After dark that evening, the provost came to the house as arranged, and in accordance with the ladies' plans, the two young men were in their own room, making a great deal of noise. The provost entered the ladies' bedroom without a sound, and groped his way through the dark, as instructed to the bed, on which Kyutatsa was already lying, having been carefully briefed by her mistress about what she was to do. Master Provost, thinking it was the lady who was lying beside him, took Kyutatsa in his arms and began to kiss her without saying a word, and Kyutatsa returned the compliment. And so the Provost began to disport himself with her, taking possession of the prize he had so long been coveting. Having thus brought the pair together, the lady directed her brothers to put the rest of the plan into effect. They therefore stole quietly out of their room and made their way towards the piazza, and fortune was even kinder to their scheme than they had hoped for since it was a very hot evening, the bishop had been looking for the two young men and was already on his way to their house for a convivial chat and some liquid refreshment. As soon as he saw them coming, he told them what he had in mind, and they all returned to the house, where, to his no small pleasure, he sat with them in a cool little courtyard in which numerous lanterns had been lit and drank some excellent wine of theirs. When they had taken their fill, the young men said, "'Since you have been so kind as to honour us with your company in our humble little abode, to which we were just about to invite you,' We should like you to take a look at something we are anxious to show you. The bishop readily agreed, and so one of the young men seized a lighted torch and led the way, being followed by the bishop and all the rest of the company, to the room where Master Provost was lying in bed with Kyutatsa. In order to make up for lost time, the provost had been riding at a furious pace, and already by the time all these people arrived he had covered at least three miles, so that, in spite of the heat, feeling a little weary, he had dropped off to sleep with Kyutatsa in his arms. Yet another delightful euphemism. So when the young man bearing the torch entered the room with the bishop and all the others in their wake, the first thing they saw was the provost lying there with Kyutatsa in his arms. At that precise moment, the provost woke up, and seeing all these people standing round him in the torchlight, he thrust his head under the bedclothes, feeling thoroughly ashamed and confused. But the bishop, taking him severely to task, forced him to show his face and have a good look at the person with whom he had been sleeping. What with his discovery of the lady's deception, and the disgrace that he felt he had suffered, the provost was instantly transformed into the saddest man who had ever lived. The bishop ordered him to dress, and when he had done so, he was marched back to the church under heavy escort, there to suffer severe penance for the sin he had committed. Before taking his leave of the lady's brothers, the bishop asked them how it had come about that the provost had gone to their house to sleep with Kutatsa, and the young men told him the whole story from beginning to end. On hearing what had happened, the bishop warmly commended the lady and the two young men, who, not wishing to soil their hands with the blood of a priest, had treated the provost as he deserved. So, in other stories where lovers have been importunate, the male relatives of the woman involved have usually been not at all hesitant to beat them up pretty badly. The situation with the priest here is slightly different because it was considered inappropriate for priests to be subject to to violence and, and corporal punishment in the same way. 
So one of the results of this was the split between the lay court and the, the church courts. People being judged in the lay courts under civilian law often faced harsher penalties than those being judged by canon law in the church courts. Of course, the bar to be judged by canon law wasn't actually very high. In some places at some times, the ability to recite the Lord's Prayer in Latin was all that was needed to prove you were sufficient of a religious person that you should be judged by the church. The provost was forced by his bishop to do 40 days' penance for his sin, but love and indignation prolonged his suffering to 49 days at the very least, to say nothing of the fact that for a long time afterwards he was unable to walk down the street without being pointed out by small boys who would taunt him with the words, There goes the man who went to bed with Kitatsa. And this riled him so much that he was almost driven out of his mind. This, then, was the way in which the worthy lady rid herself of the presumptuous provost's insufferable attentions, and Kutatsa won herself a smock. When Amelia had brought her story to an end, and the widow had been commended by all those present, the queen looked towards Philostrato and said, Now it is your turn to speak. Philostrato promptly replied that he was ready to do so, and began as follows. Delectable ladies, after hearing Alyssa referring just now to the young man called Maso del Saggio, I have been prompted to discard the tale I was intending to relate in order to tell you one about Maso and some of his companions, which, though not improper, contains certain words that you ladies would hesitate to use. But since it is highly amusing, I am sure you would like to hear it. As all of you will doubtless have heard, the chief magistrates of our city very often come from the marches, and tend as a rule to be mean-hearted men, who live such a frugal and beggarly sort of life that anyone would think they hadn't a penny to bless themselves with. And because of their inborn miserliness and avarice, they bring with them judges and notaries who seem to have been brought up behind a plough or recruited from a cobbler's shop rather than from any of the schools of law. Now one of these marchmen came here to take up his appointment as Podesta, and among the numerous judges he brought with him there was one called Messer Nicola da San Lepidio, who looked more like a coppersmith than anything else and he was assigned to the panel of judges that tried criminal cases. Gotta love that classism. Now, it frequently happens that people go to the law courts who have no business to be there at all, and this was the case with Maso del Saggio, who had gone there one morning to look for a friend. His gaze being attracted to the place where this Messer Nicola was sitting, he was struck by the man's curious and witless appearance, and began to scrutinise him carefully and amongst the many strange features that he noted, unbecoming in any person of tidy habits and gentle breeding, he saw that the fur of his judge's cap was thick with grime, that he had a quill case dangling from his waist, and that his gown was longer than his robe. But the most remarkable thing of all, to Maso's way of thinking, was a pair of breeches, the crotch of which, when the judge was sitting down and his clothes gaped open in front owing to their skimpiness, appeared to come halfway down his legs. The robe is the outer garment that goes over the top of the gown. The gown in the 14th century was often relatively short, certainly above knee length for young men. It might be barely covering the butt. The robe was the sort of garment that a serious man wore and an older man wore, and it gave a bit more coverage. Breaches were usually not visible under the gown on the robe. They weren't meant to show. I'm not sure what exactly they're translating as breeches here. I'm assuming it's the essentially the underpants. And 
while they are usually a fairly loose garment, they're usually sort of tucked in, essentially, so they're not you're not supposed to be able to see it. It's like seeing somebody's underpants over the waistband of their jeans because their jeans are riding down. This is not a man who is well-dressed. Having seen all he wanted to see of the judge's breeches, he abandoned the search for his friend and set off on a different quest, this time for two companions of his called Ribi and Matiuzzo, who were no less high-spirited than Maso himself. And when he had tracked them down, he said to them, if my friendship means anything to you, come along with me to the law courts and I'll show you the most priceless booby you ever saw. So off he went with Ribi and Mateuzzo to the law courts, where he showed them the judge and his breeches. Viewing this spectacle from the back of the court, they began to laugh, and on coming closer to the platform on which Master Judge was seated, they saw that it would be very easy for a person to conceal himself underneath it. Moreover, the plank on which the judge's feet were resting had a large hole in it, through which a hand and an arm could be thrust with the greatest of ease. Maso therefore turned to his companions and said, Let's pull those breeches right down for the fellow. We can do it quite easily. The other two had already seen how it could be done, and having arranged with one another what they were to say and do, they returned there the following morning. Despite the fact that the courtroom was crowded, Matteuzzo managed to crawl into the space beneath the platform without being seen, and positioned himself exactly below the spot where the judge's feet were resting. Then Mateuzio went up to the judge on one side and seized the hem of his robe, whilst Ribi approached him from the other side and did the same. Sir, Maso began, oh sir, I beseech you in God's name not to let this petty thief who is standing at the other side of you escape from this courtroom before you have made him give me back the pair of thigh boots he has stolen from me. He claims he didn't do it, and yet I saw him less than a month ago having them resold. Then Ribi shouted in his other ear, don't you believe him, sir, he's a lying rogue and because he knows that I've come to lay a complaint against him for stealing a saddlebag of mine, he comes out with this story about the thigh boots which I've had in my house for donkey's years. If you don't believe me, I can call any number of witnesses, such as the woman next door who runs the fruit stall, and grass of the tripe merchant, and a dustman of Santa Maria of Azaya, who saw him on his way home from town. Maso, for his part, was not prepared to leave all the talking to Ribi, but he too began to shout, and Ribi shouted even louder. And as the judge stood up and edged closer to them in order to follow what they were saying, Mateuzio seized his opportunity thrust his hand through the hole in the plank, took a firm hold of the seat of the judge's breeches, and pulled hard. The breeches came down forthwith, for the judge was a scraggy fellow and very lean in the buttocks. Being at a loss to understand how this had come about, the judge tried to cover himself up by drawing his clothes across the front of his body and sitting down, but Maso and Ribi were still holding onto them at either side and shouting their heads off, saying, It's monstrous, sir, that you should refuse me a hearing and try to withdraw without giving you a verdict. Surely you don't need written evidence to decide a trifling matter of this sort. And whilst they were saying all this, they held on to his clothes sufficiently long for everyone in court to perceive that he had lost his breeches. Then finally, Mateuzio, having clung to them for a little time, released his hold and made good his escape from the courtroom without being seen. Whilst Ribi, deciding he had done quite enough, exclaimed, I swear to God I'll appeal to the Senate. At the same time, Maso let go the judge's robe on his side, saying, I shan't go to any Senate. I'll keep coming back here, sir, until I find you in less of a muddle than you seem to be this morning and they both made off in opposite directions as fast as their legs could carry them. It was only at this point that Master Judge, having pulled up his breeches before all those present as though he were just getting up out of bed, became aware of the deception, and demanded to know what had become of the two men who were arguing about the thigh boots and the saddlebag. But when they couldn't be found, he began to swear by the bowels of God that someone should tell him whether it was the custom in Florence for a judge to have his breeches removed while sitting on the bench of justice. 
When the Podesta, for his part, was told what had happened, he practically threw a fit. But when it was pointed out by his friends that this had only been done in order to show him that the Florentines knew he had brought fools with him instead of judges so as to save money, he thought it best to hold his tongue, and nothing more was said about the matter. One thing that is relevant to this story is that, you know, the Podesta has appointed the magistrate, has appointed these judges by his own choice in order to save money. Now, why is that? That's essentially because it's the magistrate's job to pay the salary of the judges and the notaries. And so by appointing people who come cheap, he can save funds. Now, that's quite different to today when you would assume that these are public officials being paid with public monies, but there's a fine long tradition of this sort of thing happening. In ancient Rome, it was standard practice for senators and especially for the censors to demonstrate their suitability for office, essentially, by showing how elaborately and generously they would fund public works. Philostrato had no sooner completed his story, which aroused a great deal of laughter, than the queen called on Philomena to follow, whereupon she began, saying, Gracious ladies, just as Philostrato was prompted to tell you the previous tale by hearing the name of Maso, in precisely the same way I too have been prompted by hearing the names of Calandrino and his companions to tell you another, which I believe you will find to your liking. It is unnecessary for me to explain to you who Calandrino, Bruno, and Buffalmaco were, for you have heard enough on that score in the earlier tale. Now, my friends, I must admit that they, that earlier tale they refer to is one that I skipped, story 8.3. In that tale, these three were introduced as a painter called Calandrino, who was nearly always to be found in the company of two other painters, whose names were Bruno and Buffalmaco. The latter were a very jovial pair, but they were also shrewd and perceptive, and they went about with Calandrino because his simple-mindedness and the quaintness of his ways were an endless source of amusement to them. And in that previous tale, Calandrino was deceived, as will happen this time as well. So I shall omit the preliminaries, and tell you that Calandrino had a little farm not far from Florence, which he had received from his wife by way of a dowry. Among the other things he acquired from this farm, every year he used to obtain a pig there, and it was his regular custom to go to the country in December with his wife, slaughter the pig, and have it salted. Now it so happened that one year, when Calandrino's wife was not feeling very well, he went to the farm by himself to slaughter the pig. And when Bruno and Buffalmaco heard about this, knowing that his wife was remaining behind, they went to stay for a few days with a priest, who was a very great friend of theirs, and lived near Calandrino's farm. Calandrino had slaughtered the pig on the morning of the very day they arrived, and on seeing them with the priest, he called out to them, saying, I bid you a hearty welcome, my friends. Come along inside, and I'll show you what an excellent farmer I am. And having taken them into the farmhouse, he showed them the pig. It was a very fine pig, as they could see for themselves, and when they learnt from Calandrino that he intended to salt it and take it back to his family, Bruno said, You must be out of your minds. Why not sell it so that we can all have a good time on the proceeds? You can always tell your wife it's been stolen. Not a chance, said Calandrino. She wouldn't believe me, and she'd kick me out of the house. Now stop pestering me, because I shall never do anything of the sort. They argued with him at great length, but it was no use. And after Calandrino had invited them to stay for supper with so reluctant an air that they decided not to accept, they all took their leave of him. After leaving Calandrino, Bruno said to Buffalmaco, 
Why don't we steal that pig of his tonight? But how are we to do that? said Buffalo Marco. I've already thought of a good way to do it, said Bruno, provided that he doesn't move it to some other place. In that case, said Buffalo Marco, let's do it. After all, why not? And when the deed is done, you and I and our friend the priest here will all make merry together. The priest was very much in favour of this idea, and so Bruno said, This thing calls for a certain amount of finesse. Now you know Buffalo Marco, don't you? Calandrino is a mean sort of fellow. He's very fond of drinking when other people pay. So let's go and take him to the tavern, where the priest can pretend to play the host to the rest of us and pay for all the drinks. When he sees that he has nothing to pay, Calandrino will drink himself into a stupor, and then the rest will be plain sailing because there's no one else staying at the house. Everything turned out as Bruno had predicted. When Calandrino saw that the priest would not allow him to pay, he began to drink like a fish, and quaffed a great deal more than he needed to make him drunk. By the time he left the tavern it was already very late, and not wishing to eat any supper, he staggered off home and went to bed, thinking he had bolted the door, whereas in fact he had left it wide open. Buffalo Marco and Bruno went and had supper with the priest, and when the meal was over they stealthily made their way to Calandrino's house, taking with them certain implements so that they could break in at the spot that Bruno had decided on earlier in the day. On finding the door open, however, they walked in, collected the pig, and carted it off to the priest's house, where they stowed it away and went off to bed. The next morning, having slept off the effects of the wine, Calandrino got up and went downstairs to find that his pig was gone and the door was open. So he went round asking various people whether they knew who had taken the pig, and being unable to find any trace of it, he began to make a great outcry, shouting, Alas! Woe is me! Somebody's stolen my pig! Meanwhile, Bruno and Buffalo Marco got up and went round to Calandrino's to hear what he had to say about the pig. And no sooner did he catch sight of them than he called out to them, almost in tears, saying, Alas, my friends, somebody's stolen my pig! Bruno then went up to him, and speaking out of the corner of his mouth, he said, Fancy that, so you've had a bit of sense at last, have you? Pah! exclaimed Calandrino. I'm telling you the gospel truth! That's the way, said Bruno. Go on shouting like that, so that people will think it's really happened. Whereupon Calandrino began to shout even louder, saying, God's body, man, I tell you, it's been stolen, it really has. Excellent, excellent, said Bruno. Keep it up, give the thing plenty of voice and make yourself heard, so as to make it sound convincing. You'll drive me to perdition in a minute, said Calandrino. Do I have to hang myself by the neck before I can convince you that it really has been stolen? Get away with you, said Bruno. How can that be when I saw it there myself only yesterday? Are you trying to make me believe it's flown away? It's gone, I tell you, said Calandrino. Go on, said Bruno, you're joking. I swear to you I'm telling the truth, said Calandrino. What am I to do now? I can't go back home without the pig. My wife will never believe me, but even if she does, she'll make my life a misery for the next twelve months. A quick aside here. A pig is a fairly large quantity of meat, and once it's been salted and properly preserved, it can last quite a long time. So this one pig a year would probably actually be eaten over the course of most of that next year. Upon my soul, said Bruno, it's a serious business if you're speaking the truth. But as you know, Calandrino, I was telling you only yesterday that you ought to say this. I wouldn't like to think you were fooling your wife and us too at the same time. Calandrino protested loudly, saying, Ah, oh, why are you so intent on driving me to despair and provoking me to curse God and all the saints in heaven? I tell you, the pig was stolen from me during the night. If that's the case, said Buffalo Marco, we'll have to see if we can find some way of getting it back. How are we to do that? said Calandrino. 
So before Marco said, Whoever took your pig, we can be quite sure that he didn't come all the way from India to do it. It must have been one of your neighbours. So all you have to do is bring them all together so that I can give them the bread and cheese test, and we'll soon see who's got it. Bread and cheese test, according to the footnotes, is to ask people to eat bread and cheese while you say certain prayers, and the thief will be unable to swallow. Oh yes, said Bruno, your bread and cheese work miracles, I'm sure, on some of the fine folk who live around here. It's quite obvious that one of them has the pig. They'd guess what we were up to and stay away. What's to be done, then? said Buffalmarco. What we ought to do, Bruno replied, is to use the best ginger sweets we can get a hold of, along with some fine vernaccio wine, and invite them round for a drink. They wouldn't suspect anything and they'd all turn up. And it's just as easy to bless ginger sweets as it is to bless bread and cheese. You certainly have a point there, said Buffalmarco. What do you say, Calandrino? Shall we give it a try? Of course, said Calandrino. Let's do that, for the love of God. If only I could find out who took it, I shouldn't feel half so miserable about it. That's settled then, said Bruno. Now I'd be quite willing to go to Florence and get these things for you if you give me the money. Calandrino gave him all the money he had, which amounted to about forty pence, and so Bruno went to Florence and called on a friend of his who was an apothecary. Having bought a pound of the best ginger sweets he had in stock, he got him to make two special ones, consisting of dog ginger seasoned with fresh hepatic aloes. This would be very bitter. Then he had these coated with sugar, like the rest, and so as not to lose them or confuse them with the others, he had a tiny mark put on them, which enabled him to recognise them without any difficulty. And having bought a flask of fine vernaccia, he returned to Calandrino's place in the country and said to him, See to it that you invite all the people you suspect to come and drink with you tomorrow morning. It's a holiday, so they'll all come readily enough. Tonight, along with Buffalmarco, I shall cast a spell on the sweets, and bring them round to your house first thing tomorrow morning. I shall hand the sweets out myself to save you the trouble, and I shall pronounce all the right words and do all the right things. Calandrino issued the invitations, and the next morning a goodly crowd of people assembled round the elm in front of the church, of whom some were farm workers, and others were young Florentines who happened to be staying in the country. Then along came Bruno and Buffalmarco with the box of sweets and the flask of wine, and having got them to stand in a circle, Bruno made the following announcement. Gentlemen, I must explain to you why you are here, so that if you should take offence at anything that happens, you won't go and blame it on me. The night before last, Calandrino, who was here among us, was robbed of a fine fat pig, and he can't find out who has taken it. And since it could only have been taken by one of the people here, he wants to discover who it was by offering to each of you in turn one of these sweets to eat, together with a drink of this wine. I should explain to you right away that whoever has taken the pig will be unable to swallow the sweet. In fact, he will find it more bitter than poison, and spit it out. So before he is put to so much shame in the presence of all these people, perhaps it would be better for the person responsible to make a clean breast of it to the priest, and I can call the whole thing off. All of them were only too eager to eat one of the sweets, and so Bruno, having lined them up with Calandrino in the middle, started from one end and began to hand out one to each of them in turn. When he came to Calandrino, he picked up one of the sweets of the dog, Ginger, and placed it in the palm of his hand. Calandrino promptly tossed it into his mouth and began to chew on it, but no sooner did his tongue come into contact with the aloe than, finding the bitter taste quite intolerable, he spat it out again. They were all keeping a close watch on one another to see who was going to spit out his sweet, and Bruno, who still had several more to distribute, carried on as though nothing had happened until he heard a voice behind him saying, "'Hey, Calandrino, what's the meaning of this?' Turning quickly round and seeing that Calandrino had spat his out, he said, "'Wait a minute!' 
Perhaps he spat it out for some other reason. Here, take another. And picking up the second one, he thrust it into Calandrino's mouth before proceeding to hand out the ones he had left. Bitter as Calandrino had found the first, the second seemed a great deal more so, but being ashamed to spit it out, he kept it in his mouth for a while. As he chewed away at it, tears as big as hazelnuts began to roll down his cheeks until eventually, being unable to bear it any longer, he spat it out like the first. Buffle Marco was meanwhile handing out drinks all round with the assistance of Bruno, and when, along with all the others, they observed what had happened, everyone declared that Calandrino had obviously stolen the pig himself, and there were one or two who gave him a severe scolding about it. However, when the crowd had dispersed, leaving Bruno and Buffle Marco alone with Calandrino, Buffle Marco turned to him and said, I was convinced all along that you were the one who had taken it. You were just pretending to us that it had been stolen so that you wouldn't have to buy us a few drinks out of the proceeds. Calandrino, who still had the bitter taste of aloe in his mouth, swore to them that he had not taken the pig, but Buffal Marco said, Own up, man, how much did it fetch? Six florins? Calandrino was by now on the brink of despair, but Bruno said, You might as well know, Calandrino, that one of the fellows we were drinking and eating with this morning told me that you had a girl up here, and that you kept her for your pleasure and gave her all the little tidbits that came your way, and that he was quite certain you had sent her this pig of yours. You've become quite expert at fooling people, haven't you? Remember the time you took us along the Bungoni? There we were collecting those black stones, and as soon as you'd got us stranded up the creek without a paddle, you cleared off home, and then tried to make us believe that you'd found the thing. And now that you've given away the pig, or sold it rather, you think you can persuade us by uttering a few oaths that it's been stolen. But you can't fool us any more, we've cottoned on to these tricks of yours, and as a matter of fact that's why we took so much trouble with the spell we cast on the sweets, and unless you give us two brazen capons for our pains, we intend to tell Monotessa the whole story. Seeing that they refused to believe him, and thinking that he had enough trouble on his hands without letting himself in for a diatribe from his wife, Calandrino gave them the two brace of capons, and after they insulted the pig they carried their spoils back to Florence with them, leaving Calandrino to scratch his head and rue his losses. Giovanni, that story was not funny. It just wasn't. I don't... Is it funny because they're people not like us, the storytellers who are upper class? That this is someone who is gullible and is fooled, and isn't it funny that there are such gullible, foolable people? Is it funny because we get to pretend to ourselves that we would never be that gullible, and we would never be fooled in such a way? We're like the clever ones. And the clever ones who are like us win. It's not funny to me that this guy's supposed friends tricked him out of, no, didn't trick him, stole an entire pig, which could have been sold for six florins, which is not a small amount of money, and then offered to help him and used that opportunity to trick him out of money for the ginger sweets and the wine, to publicly humiliate him with the dog ginger and to extort two chickens out of him which are also reasonably expensive. I don't find this funny, Giovanni, and I'm disappointed in you. Bitching About the Decameron is created by Gwen David and produced by Amanda Martell. Take care and thanks for listening.